Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I am thrilled to once again be joined by Andrew Heaton. He's a comedian. He's an author. He's a political satirist. I mean, what a job to have these days. You don't have to do anything. The jokes write themselves, people. We're living in the satire. He's the host of The Political Orphanage, a skyrocketing podcast. I mean this literally. It has skyrocketed up the ratings charts even since the last time we had Andrew on the show. He also hosts the sci-fi deep dive podcast, Alienating the Audience, which makes me think of probing, which is fantastic. He's a frequent Reason TV contributor. He hosts the popular web series mostly weekly. He's a best-selling author. He folds. He does laundry. Ladies, I mean, what's not to love out here? Andrew Heaton, welcome back to Beyond Politics. A pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me back on. I, I and, and thank you for that wonderful Wonderful introduction. When I when I do stand up comedy, a lot of the time I'll end up doing a, like a, a country club or something. And the like the last time I did this, the the guy that introduced me, clearly this was his big moment to shine, where he got to tell a joke, and like all the effort went into that. And then when he actually got to the bit of his job that was introducing me, the whole reason he was on stage, he went, "This next guy, Andre Keaton, very funny podcaster." And I was like, "Damn it, you had one job. You just had to get my name right." And say I was funny. That was it. Anyway, you you nailed that out of the park. If I if I could hire a herald oh. to have to like like just kick the door open and be like, everyone, pay attention. The great Andrew Heaton enters. I would I would do that. I would I would grab you. I've been told that I look really good in hose. So mm. I would be I would be happy to come out with a trumpet and affect a British accent, which I'm terrible at, and uh, to try to be a little bit funny, which I'm also according to no my no no that'd be perfect though because there's nothing at. that there's nothing that irritates British people more than Americans doing crummy British accents. So this would oh. be like a good power move if I was going to oh, yeah. go over to the United Kingdom and just ha- like that. Everyone's like, why is he talking that way? Is this is this is he making fun of us? I don't know. You're not allowed to bring it up. Just be quiet and we'll offer them tea. And it'd, it'd be great. It'd just throw the whole system off. Yeah. In your face, Beckham. All right. Mm-hmm. So look, here's the setup for the show today. It is increasingly popular in podcasts and videos. Use a gimmick. We actually did one of these a couple of weeks ago with Jason Sattler, better known online as LOL GOP to his literally hundreds of thousands of Twitter fans. And uh, it was fun. It was awesome. We borrowed one of these sports pad podcast ideas of, are you sure that? And then we'd throw a sentence like, are you sure that at, at one another? That was great. It was awesome. But I don't want to repeat myself. That's stale. So I was spitballing with Andrew offline and like, ooh, how about we do this? How about we do this? We could not come up with a unifying theme. So we're just going to do two. It's like it's like an IHOP thing, like split decision breakfast. We can't decide. So we have two things that we're going to try and do here. Number one, things that are driving us nuts right now. And then number two, if, if we can't fill up a whole show with that, we're going to touch on a few of our recent episodes, a little bit more positive. It's like, we're like the best ideas, the most interesting stuff we've heard recently between Beyond Politics and Political Orphanage. Sound good? We on? Sounds great. Yes, I'm I'm on. All right. All right, let's do it. Let's let's start let's start with number 1. This is we can affect foe outrage. Andrew Heaton. Over to you. What's the, what's the first thing that's driving you nuts right now? It can, it's probably mostly political, but it it is. Else. No, no, no. It, it is political. I I think the thing that's driving me nuts right now is I I view politics 
this is surprising from a liberal arts guy who doesn't understand math. I view politics really as, a, as an engineering equation. It's about problem solving. It's about input output system. It's just it's it's you're you're trying to optimize systems. That's what political economy is, right? And so I want politics to be primarily focused on the government working well or or redistributing the balance of power between the public sector and the private sector to achieve an optimal outcome, et cetera, et cetera. We're 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 tinkering in a in a generally positive manner. And I, I feel like over the last 10 years, that that being kind of the platonic core to a lot of politics has has dissipated as more and more people just use politics as some weird ersatz religion or like WWF proxy of just this this whole thing exists so I can fight people and I love having a team to hate. And it, it ends up breeding this really oppositional thinking and reactionary thinking of what do I want? I don't know. What do you want? I want the opposite of that. I hate you. And that bit, that bit drives me crazy. I like, I, um, there's plenty of things in life where you can hate people. We already have plenty of hate. We don't need any more hate. And, and it, 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 like it, it's become so, so tribalized that it becomes very difficult to do basic statecraft. If, if you and I were, we're, we're arguing, I want to reduce jute tariffs by 15% and you want to subsidies for those little plastic dongles on shoelaces by 10%. I think that's crazy. We should have, I think we should have any, any subsidies for shoelace dongles. And you think, oh, the good people of Maine's jute processing deserve the tariffs. We can, we can eventually come up with, all right, here's the, here's the, we're going to give 5% subsidies for your stupid dongles, but you got to drop the tariffs on the jute by 7%. And you could you could at least reach an achievable outcome. But as people become just angrier and more reactionary, and the, the point of politics is no longer to fix stuff, but to defeat the person I hate. I just want to defeat them because I hate them so much. It all just becomes this awful morass that we're living in. Now, to be clear, there are hateable people. I probably on both sides, I, I doing a both sides, but there are hateable people in politics. But yes, yes, amen, Andrew Heaton. And I, I'm literally, right now, I paused doing this to record this show with you. I'm writing an article for Newsweek. It'll probably be out by the time people hear this or watch it. On why debates are terrible. They're terrible, terrible, terrible. Remember what Dana Bash called them on CNN? I can't say it for the radio version. A I don't recall. Can you speak in code for me? It's a, 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 a turd show. Got it, it got it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know I mean, what that means. They're 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 awful, but I mean they're a slice of of the bigger pie of everything you're talking about. But it's terrible. They're they are an exercise in trying to create a meme, a viral moment, mm-hmm. a gotcha. You know, it's 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 like the South Park thing. It's like we've got a giant douche and a turd sandwich, and it's like, hey, you're a turd sandwich. Well, you're a giant douche, and you're both right, and they're awful. And the real part that bothers me is your point about dongle tariffs. And I mean this sincerely. It's there is no element of them that goes into educating voters that no. goes into let's have let's have a discussion. Let me give you an actual real example, not tongue in cheek, because I'm not as good at that as you are. You're an actual comedian. I'm, I'm not. I, I, so the number one issue, according to voters right now, is inflation. Right. And Republicans are absolutely cleaning the clocks of Democrats on this issue. So the Democrats move on it is pivot, 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 pivot. I've done a ton of debate prep with candidates back when I was a staffer. 
And I would be doing this too. I'd be saying, don't get into it. We don't want to talk about it. It's bad. It's bad. So pivot, talk about abortion, say, really? Prices are high. Well, you're into no one getting an abortion. So, ha! so I mean, that's great, I guess, for getting a, a meme, but it's terrible for actually educating the voter. And what's so stupid about it is that Democrats actually have a story to tell here. Top economists. We had Mark Zandi, one of the most, most noted economists in America, on the show a few months ago saying the numbers actually say that Democrats' policies have nothing to do with inflation, hmm. but basically nothing. And, you know, w- what they have done is probably helping. All right. Well, we can have a debate about that. I'm having a debate over text with a Republican friend of mine right now. And he's saying, well, it's probably not what re- Democrats have done, probably not going in the right direction. And I'm saying, yeah, but you know, it's really not Democrats' fault. And what we're doing helps a lot more than what Republicans are. We could actually have a discussion about this. We're not, it's stupid. It's I would crazy. love it if we did that. I so I've I've had two economists on my show in the last six months as well talking about inflation, and I still don't understand what the hell is happening. And I'm I'm like, I'm above average intelligence. I've got a master's degree. I'm still in political economy. I've read all these books by dead white guys talking about economy. Like I know more than the average bear here, and I'm still utterly like when we get into macroeconomic financial policy. And, and like, like I, I get so I, I just did a TV hit of the United Kingdom and, and they were getting into like, you know, Jeremy Hunt, the, the chancellor says that the Bank of England would probably only go up 2%. Do you think this will have a salutary effect on? And I'm like, and I'm like, honestly, I don't know. When the camera stopped, I apologized. And I was like, guys, I'm sorry. I don't like I don't like lying to people. I don't I don't know. And they're like, listen, none of us know either. It's like no one like it, I'm not saying nobody knows, but it's they very complicated. The, the idea of an exchequer. Like that come up because they they have all kinds of jobs there that like are real things, but sound like they're made up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that, that stuff came up. The, the bit that I found really funny with British politics was Liz Truss appears to have been shot down because she she was going to institute very large tax breaks, which were going to make the deficit increase. And the British people freaked out and went, you can't do that. We can't have a deficit that's larger. And I was like, as an American, we haven't even tried since 1992, like that's 1996. We just haven't even bothered. This is adorable to me that you all still are clinging to the idea of a deficit. I, I would, I would love it to go back to the inflation thing if that was something that, that the parties actually had an educational element on. And I think part of the problem, if if we can skip over a little bit into solutions, is that the the current setup we have is one that predominantly rewards not voting for the other guy. We, we don't really right. have a system that rewards people for like, I, I really want to vote Democrat or I really want to vote Green or Libertarian or but what other thing is, right? It, it tends to be, I hate the other candidate or I'm terrified of the other candidate and I want to vote for them. And then politicians put all of their efforts into how do I herd old people towards me using fear and hatred as a crook. And, and it's, 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 it's up. I mean, and, and I, I'm, I'm very big on electoral reform. And I, I, think, I, I think a lot of the problems we have right now are just structural problems. And, and it comes from the fact that we use first, first past the post. If we, if we had ranked choice voting, we need to pair it with something else. But if we had ranked choice voting with like top five open primaries or something to that effect, you could actually have somebody come in and say, hey, like, this is why inflation is happening. I am going to get rid of it by getting rid of these ridiculous jute tariffs. If we can just get rid of these jute tariffs, I'm pretty sure we could put a we can kick inflation in the side. And and people would go, okay, you know what? I actually believe in that guy. I actually think he knows what he's doing. And I'm going to write him down as number one. I'm going to write down the Democrats or the Libertarian, whatever the thing is, number two. And I, I think you'd find that it would not only free up 
independents and third parties, but actually free up the, the Republicans and the Democrats as well to to no longer have to be trapped in this oppositional framework. And I like you, you talk to like people leaving Congress. They don't like it any more than we do. Like a lot of them, there turns out there's actually a lot of, of elected leaders that want to fix things. And then they get there and it's like, no, your job is just to basically give speeches on C-SPAN to collect money, to give to the party, to scare old people. That's your job. All right. So two program placement announcements. What, what do you call it? A self-promotion. I'm doing self-promotion online, just Good. like politicians. First of all, check out the episode of Great Ideas, another podcast I do. It's not as cool as alienating the audience. It has almost as much probing in which I interview an expert on what's called approval voting. It's an alternative nice. to ranked choice. Right. Yeah. And I, he convinced me. He actually convinced me that it's like ranked choice, but better. It's worth checking out. You might want to on the show. My, my friend, yeah. Andrea Jones-Roy, she's a, an NYU political science professor and is adamant that this is the the true enlightened voting mechanism, that ranked choice voting is okay, but approval voting is really where the gravy is. So I, I would be happy with either one. I just want to get away from the current first past the post. Yeah. I mean, I think that's- Or, or you can, have you ever heard of quadratic voting? Oh, that look, I love the idea of something that's more complicated than yes, I did exactly. in high school. Uh, yeah. Is it like B squared, square root? Minus. Yes, it's it's really complicated. Like, I don't think it'll ever work because it's too it's too complicated to explain to people. Like, ranked choice voting is very easy because you're just saying, yeah, you're just numbering people in order of preference. People people get that right. Uh, quadratic voting, which I think is a really interesting idea, and you'd have to you'd have to have a way to simplify this for people. But in effect, let's say let's say you get your ballot in the midterms for governor, senator, congressman, and a bunch of state propositions and, and judges and things like that. Right now, uh, and on every ballot in the entire United States, you get to pick what you want on every one of those questions. And it's one one vote per question. With quadratic voting, you just get a lump sum and you get to you get to oh. adjudicate where you want to put those votes. It's like the fantasy draft where you get like a certain budget, right? E- exactly. Exactly. And, yeah, and the, yeah. the reason that I that I kind of like this is the way our current system set up, like you're the weight of your vote is exactly the same for president as it is for prop five. Should teddy bears be labeled in the state of Maine? And like in, in reality, I don't really care about the teddy bear labeling thing. Like when I get to that part of the, the polling, I'm like, Oh yeah, I, I guess we could label them. I like I, I'm I, on a, on a, on a one to 10 scale. I'm a two. And so with this one, you'd go, I don't even care about that. I, but I really care. Or like, you'd be like, you know what? I really care about corporate commissioner. Like this affects my life. I know the corporate commissioner. I know my vote's not going to make a difference with governor. I know that the spread's too high, but I can make a difference with the corporate commissioner. I'm going to put half my votes on that guy. All right. I'm so glad you went there because this gets exactly to something that was driving me nuts. Literally yesterday I was voting. Yes, it was a Sunday. We're recording this on a Monday. Why? Because I can vote by mail because, you know, apparently that's a thing we do in America now and it's good and it doesn't involve fraud or aliens probing us or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I'm voting and there are four ballot questions that I have to look at. And there are two that I could not give a toss about to quote our over the pond friends. I just could not care less. But there are two that I actually do kind of care about. This gets to another point, another thing that drives me crazy that I heard yesterday. So trite you hear it every election season. So I, I was watching a few minutes of NFL football, not intentionally. I mean, I do like a good compound fracture, but it would just happen to be on. And I was nursing like a back injury. So I'm watching it. And the uh, host says, this is so, oh, it's such a warmed over line. It's like, Vote, people. I don't care who you vote for. Just vote. Okay. It's just good. Let me push back. 
Is it? Is it though? Is it actually good? Because your vote matters as much as mine. If you don't know dickery do, mm. I don't want you to vote. Why should your uninformed dumbass opinion cancel out my opinion? I have an opinion that I work very, very hard yeah. at forming. I do research. I think this is sort of my field. I'm yeah. not saying that I'm more valuable as a human or I'm a better citizen. I am a better citizen. I'm just saying that like, I'm okay with a certain amount of want to going into voting. Now, I don't, I don't like the Republican ideas, which are, hey, if you're black, maybe you shouldn't get to vote. That's evil. It's bad. It's racist. We got to get that crap out of here in America. But for goodness sakes, I don't want it just thrown out there. It's like, hey, show up, vote. You know, it's like I, you should actually think first. How about that be a prerequisite? Think, think, then I'm, vote. I'm 100 percent with you. I, I played around with an idea a few years ago that I, I don't think would work. But I, I wrote a book called Laughter is Better Than Communism about 10 years ago. And what, one of the chapters in it is I, I come up with the idea that we have li like in the same way that we have driver's license tests, we have like an, an annual civics test and you get as many votes as your score. So if you get 99%, you get 99 votes. If you get 30%, I don't think that's a good idea now. I, I think there's many, many reasons that that would not work out and it would probably be abused. And there's also a history of, you know, like trying- They tried that in Alabama. Trying to disenfranchise black people, which I don't want to do. So basically, I, like I, I come down with you and, and go, look, it's up to the voter. What, what I do on my end, I, I'm very similar to you. I research things. I get the ballot in advance. If I don't know something, I don't vote on it. I, it's actually yes. pretty, it's pretty rare for me. I think last Wild. year- I was registered in Oklahoma because I was still I was living over there for a little while and I'm from there. So I knew the state better and I could call people. I could call people that knew what they were talking about and go, what do you think about Prop 9? That's the first time I've ever filled out an entire voting ballot since since like graduating college when I thought I knew everything. But as an adult, like what like I don't I don't tend to vote on the judges if I don't know anything about them. I I I think you were your patriotic duty is not to screw up the process. So the the, the ways to do that are research it and and have a have a good opinion. If you're going to research things, great. If you feel passionate, great. But if you just don't know, don't don't bother. Absolutely. I, I, this yeah. also happened to me yesterday. There of the four ballot, I just didn't vote on one because I don't know. Yeah, and. I don't care. It's like it's like the the athlete who was asked, "Are you ignorant or apathetic?" and he says, "I don't know and I don't care." That's uh -huh. how I felt about that ballot measure. Okay. Andrew Heaton, host of the Political Orphanage, a prolific writer, a comedian, an actual funny human being. My kids assure me that I am not funny in any way. Andrew Heaton is actually funny. I I know. How do I know this? Because William Shatner once described him as very funny. And that proves it as far as I'm concerned. If Captain Kirk says you're funny, then you are funny. We were just talking about stuff that drives us nuts. Do you have any other stuff that's driving you nuts? Or do you want to go to the more positive portion of the show where we talk about interesting things we've heard on our podcasters? I, I, if it's okay with you, let's move over to the positive stuff because I, I'm in the process of trying to suppress all the negativity in me. Like I, like rather than working it out as an adult, I'm just trying to ignore it and suppress it. So we can move to the positive stuff and I, that'll help facilitate that. All right. So I can't talk about Herschel Walker saying evolution can't be real because they say we came from apes. We've still got apes. Think about it. Oh my right. God. Did he say that? Well, okay. So here's, he said that here, we're not going to talk about that though. Here, here's one of the things that's going on for me is like, not only have I been in the United Kingdom for the last three months, so I've been missing out on the day-to-day -day stuff. I, I tend to just, the, the, the longer I do the political orphanage, the more I get focused on kind of abstract concepts and systems. So I'm, I'm like, let's talk about ranked choice voting, or let's talk about a quantitative easing. But like, I tend to go conceptual and I don't tend to do as much 
day-to-day stuff, which is fine. It's just not what I cover. As a result, like I no longer know what's going on. Like, and I like I've I've seen Herschel Walker a couple of times and he seems like an idiot, but I don't like, I don't have a litany of stuff, but he claimed the evolution can't be real because if we're from apes, there would be no other apes. Yeah. He's yeah. He's what you would call an ignoranus. He's both stupid and an ass, but yes, he, he, he believes that the continuing existence of apes disproves evolution. That I would say is sort of the high point of his thought process. It, it does not get better than that, but let's move. I don't want to bum people out. If your objective is to stay at a high level, I try and do the same thing you do. I try and stay at a, at a deeper dive kind of conceptual level, but I can't avoid getting sucked in because sometimes it's just, it's too good. All right. Look, you did a show with Lee Drutman of New America. He's mm-hmm. a scholar who people should Google him. I followed his work for a long time. He is a proponent of multi-member congressional Mm. districts. It's like having a cage match with your political opponents every time you run because you're all in the same district. We're on radio, by the way, in a state, New Hampshire, where that's the system they use for the legislature. Oh, I forgot you're in New Hampshire. That's a great state. I love New Hampshire. Good job, guys. You guys are not Remember, out of the park. we were going to make you the yeah, vice poet yeah. laureate of New Hampshire. Right, right. right? Yeah. That's still a thing. It's going to yeah. happen. But, you know, I'm, so I'm, I'm familiar with this working as, as a system. So it, that's what he's basically saying. How does this work in America? Why, why is Lee saying that this is a good idea? Right. So one of the reasons that that multi-district voting or excuse me, multi-member districts make a ton of sense is you cannot gerrymander that district. Like right now, the the Republicans in particular have really knocked gerrymandering out of the park going back to like 08 or so. They've they've and they're doing it at like a granular surgical level using incredible computational skills to the point where they can like Ah, let's cut out that guy's chicken coops. So we can't own chickens and the chickens can't vote. In the, like that level of, of incredible granularity. If you have one in effect, like how many members of Congress does New Hampshire have? Two. There's two. Uh, so the, the way it would work in New Hampshire, this is less impressive with only two. But but rather than having two congressional districts and you're, you're voting in one of the two, there's just one congressional district and you get to allot two, two members. So everyone in New Hampshire would vote for Congress. And the top two people to get votes would be your your members of Congress. Oklahoma, where I'm from, which has we've we've lost a district. I think it's six now. Six members of Congress. It would just be one giant congressional district. And part of the benefit to this is not only that you can't gerrymander stuff, but that you also are going to be more representational of the overall body politique of the the area you're in. We're we're using a system which we we developed predominantly. Before we thought parties would be a thing, we did not think political parties would would really ever be a thing. We thought what was going to happen was we were going to have hyper geographic based voting where where your district was voting for its interests. And and that was it. It was very much a regional hyper local system where where we would go. Bob's a good dude. I feel like Bob would represent my interest and Bob would go there. And we're not living in that world anymore. We're not living in a hyper geographic world. Most most people that are voting these days are voting on national issues that are ideological. They're they're voting on party lines. They're they're voting. they're, they're, They're voting for things that are that are beyond the scope of their smaller district. And under the current system, first past the polls, one member per district, you get a kind of illusion that happens. You get a kind of ideological gerrymandering that happens. Where like like Oklahoma, where I'm from, six congressional districts, every one of them is Republican. Well, that doesn't mean everybody in Oklahoma is Republican. That means that in those six congressional districts, 
60% were Republican, 40% went Democrat. But that's that you're not actually getting representatives from the state as a whole. You're you're getting these kind of surgically altered ones. I'm not claiming that that's like nefarious in Oklahoma, but what I am saying is multiple members per district is going to be more representative because in Oklahoma, what you probably get is you'd get like probably three or four Republicans and a Democrat and a third party candidate. Very likely because there, there'd be enough Democrats that like, yeah, if 40% or 30% of the electorate is registered there, you're going to get one. You're going to have at least one person that you agree with that represents your views while you're up there. And like third parties and independents would have more of an impact too, because a lot of people are going to be voting for the, the same Republican or the same Democrat. So the, the main pitch I have though, is you can't have gerrymandering if you have multi-member districts, because there's no way to draw those squiggly lines. The only, the only district you could not alter is the, the state itself. Alabama is still going to be Alabama. Texas is still going to be Texas, but all the districts they're in. And this doesn't require a constitutional amendment because state delegations are, are at liberty to design themselves. Basically, states just go, the, the Congress says, according to the census, you guys get six representatives. Great. Just send six up. We don't care how you make them. Uh, like Congress can veto that. It can override it if there's something nefarious going on, but it doesn't have to. If, if Maine, Texas, Oklahoma, California went, yeah, from now on, we're just, we're doing it this way. And, and that's how we're going to select them. That, that's fine. You don't even have to modify the constitution, which makes it actually politically feasible. You just have to get it done on the state level. There's a lot I love about everything you just said. It reminds me a great deal of Chuck Schumer's former right-hand man on policy, friend of mine, Ryan McConaughey from the Hill, been on my show a couple of times. And I asked him about dysfunction in Congress do like a year of shows on that. Mm -hmm. And he said, the key to fixing dysfunction is it's about, it, it's about incentives on the outside of the institution. Your incentives in America are everything you just said. It's, it's to be as extreme as possible. It's everything that I'm talking about in my Newsweek article about debates. Our political incentives right now are to incense your side of the partisan divide so that you can eke out a win on turnout. Both sides are locked into a death grip struggle. Speaking of William Shatner, it reminds me of that classic Star Trek episode where you've got the, the, the planet where half the people are black on one yeah. side, white on the other yeah. side, and they're locked in this death struggle. And each one is under the illusion that if they can just get the upper hand, they'll continue to drive their advantage forever, notwithstanding the fact that American politics is thermostatic. So as soon as one side gets the other, the yeah. upper hand, the other side by, by natural political gravity forces, rises yeah. back up and, and takes over. What this would do, this multi-member district thing, is it would ungerrymander us, mm -hmm. one thing, and it would change the incentives. Mm -hmm. It would actually give incentives to represent the fat middle of the American yeah. electorate because there are most of the votes there. And it wouldn't just incentivize you to drive turnout on the extreme edges would also solve some of our vexing political questions about how we draw our districts. Right now, there's a Supreme Court case on Alabama's system. They have seven districts. And under the Voting Rights Act, they have to have at least one that's a majority yeah. black district. And this is creating a bit of a dilemma for con the Congressional Black Caucus, which is arguing, well, hey, we want more majority black districts so that we can get more Black representatives in Congress. That's an important thing that there's a value to that. On the other hand, we, we want there to be more Democrats in Congress and maybe right. more majority districts actually makes our situation worse. 
under the, under your plan, I sound like Al Gore under my plan. I'm under under. That was a good plan. Al Gore right there. That oh, was thanks. impressive. Thanks. I can do, I can do politicians for like one line for like a couple of words. I can do Barack Obama. I can say your plan is pretty good. So nice. yeah, thanks. You know, so you would get rid of that problem under multi-member districts yeah. because it would you could have multiple black candidates. Mm-hmm. Black voters could vote for someone to represent them. From, from from their ethnic group, if that's something that they prioritize and prefer, it leaves more power in the hands of the voter. Or maybe people identify more as, hey, I'm a Democrat. I don't really care as much about mm-hmm. the racial aspect of my representation. So it, it does solve a number of problems. I love it. I love it. It, it does. And, and that's, I, I'm glad you brought up the Alabama situation because that is, that is a, a dilemma even for people acting in good faith because of all of the atrocious, uh, atrocious things going on, countermandering civil rights back in the 20th century, the Supreme Court made a ruling that you have to have the majority districts. And the, the, that sounds great because it does guarantee in effect, effectively guarantees that there's going to be a black member of Congress. But it also means that in a state like Alabama, Republicans can go, oh, great. So let's just take all of the Democrats and put them in one district. And you end up getting guaranteed five districts of Republicans and guaranteed one district of Democrats. And a a lot of politicians really don't want competitive democracy. They want a guaranteed seat. They, they They want the democracy to happen at the primaries that they're already participating in. And part of the the problem that happens with this whole system as well is the fat middle you're talking about, of which I I am happy to be one of the the fat. You're very slim. You're very slim. But I'm I'm very much in the middle, right? So like like from from my perspective, I am an independent. I've been an independent for a while now. I'm ethnically Republican. I was raised by Goldwater conservatives, and then I, I, I converted to the Democratic Party when I was in college. When I when I worked on the Hill, I was a Democrat. You identify worker. as trans ideology. I'm, I'm definitely trans ideology. And I I ended up becoming an independent. I I could I know where I'm at. I could get along very well with like Rocky Mountain Democrats. I really like Colorado Democrats like Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper. Like I I, I like pro-market Democrats, right? And Boring I get along white guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get I get same thing. I get I get along, I get along really well with like the now completely defunct Rockefeller wing of the Republican Party. Like, I, I'm sure your listeners know people in New Hampshire that are like John Gregg, Charlie Bass. I, 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 I want I want lower taxes, but I'm gay. I don't care. Like like those those Republicans I'm fine with. I'm fine with them. And, and so I, I would get along with those things. But the, the way that the system currently works is because in, in virtually every state, you have a closed primary that only the really animated party faithful are going to go show up to. We have ideological gerrymandering going on top of geographical gerrymandering. And what I mean by that is that the in, in, a, in a district that is going to be Republican, and there's no doubt about this because it's been shaped in such a way that there's, there's going to be a Republican outcome, the people that are elected there have no incentive to represent anybody that's not a Republican. They don't have an incentive to represent me or or any Democrats in their district. And what ends up happening is you you get, as you you point out, this thermostatic effect where the Republicans and Democrats will both nominate extreme versions of their party that cater to the most animated within the party. And those of us that are in the middle, from our perspective, have to go, so I have to choose between Ramsey Bolton and King Joffrey? I like could I I was really rooting for Ned Stark. Is is there Giant like some turn, kind of I think middle is candidate? The, uh, yes. Well, all right, can I give you some good news? Mm-hmm. I had a guest on my show who is a a high-level Republican pollster. He actually literally wrote the book on how American campaigns work, and he's a Republican. 
His name is Michael Cohen. Don't let that throw you off. He's not, not, not that one. The other not one. that guy. The other one. He That'd be great if that on up. the book it said Michael Cohen in parentheses, the other one. That would be amazing. <laughs> the other one. Yeah. The, the, the other white guy. I No, he's, but he's terrific. And he, he raised this really interesting idea to me that, again, it's, it goes down to incentives, right? There are, as you just alluded to, no incentives to tack toward the middle or yeah. to even listen to, I have this text exchange going with my Republican friend, and we throw ideas sometimes at each other, but mostly past each other and around. And but it's like, we, we can actually agree on something. There's no incentive to do that. No. Like, why and, and, is in a fact, there's a, there's a disincentive because there's a disincentive. If you're a member of Congress and you're, you're, you're a Republican from Texas and, and you're fraternizing with the enemy because we're, we're now living in this horrid time period where we, we no longer view our neighbors as opponents. We view them as enemies. I know. Rhino. Uh, right. You're you're now a rhino. You're a traitor. Well, why would I, I? And I know if I'm in this majority district that's Republican, I know I, the Democrat's not going to take me out. I can literally kill someone and, and still beat a Democrat. What I can't beat is if anybody thinks I'm a namsy pamsy, limp-wristed Republican who voted only 98 out of 100 times for the Republican agenda, some guy's going to come stab me in the back. So I have no incentive. You know what this happened to? Dan Crenshaw. You remember him last yeah. seen on SNL receiving an apology for that bit that called him out. He wears an eye patch. Why? Mm-hmm. Because he lost an eye in, in the course of serving our country. I mean, look, he's kind of a crazy Republican, but he's mostly a sane Republican. He wouldn't just he's he's one of those. That, that by the way, is my threshold right now for Republicans is mostly sane. <laughs> right. If, if right, you right. could like like Ben Sass knocking it out of the park in terms of sanity, although I think yeah. he's leaving. He's like Earth, mostly harmless. And so yeah. <laughs> he's fine. He's fine. He's, he's mostly saying you could have a conversation with him. He's a rhino now, apparently. I don't remember yeah. what his apostasy was. So here's Michael Cohen's point. He thinks we've gone so far in the direction of eking out every last vote by angering people on our side to get them to turn out that there's going to be a money ball effect in politics. And now the most efficient use of our time, resources, and efforts is going to be tacking toward the center and finding that remaining segment, six to 9% of the electorate that's still considered to be persuadable swing voters. Hmm. Here's the only problem with, with his analysis. Mike's analysis is you still have to, it, it's nice if you have an incentive because that's where you can gain an edge, but it's even better if you set up the rules of the game to really incentivize you to go after the middle. And if you did have approval voting mm-hmm. and multi-member districts, yeah. you would have that incentive. People like you, God help us, would actually be really well positioned to become members of Congress, which would be fantastic. And hey, I had, look, then thank you. Like right now, I, I, I could not get, I, there's nowhere, may, maybe Whoa. in New Hampshire, I could rally enough old gay Republicans to like, like, like rally behind me. But otherwise there's no, like, where would I, I live in Austin. I am way too conservative, moderate to get elected in Austin, but anywhere else in Texas, I'm I, I'm always center whatever the per, I'm always center other whatever whoever I'm talking to. All my Republican friends think I'm center left. All my Democrat friends think I'm center right. And what they mean by that is you're not on my team, but you're palatable. That's what that really means because the whole spectrum's nonsense anyway. But there's there's nowhere I could get elected in our in our current system. But that's that's the way it's supposed to work. All right, so look. Let's do one more. Let's do one more because we have such great conversations about each one of these topics. I thought we were going to run through like 20 of them. We've got time for one more good one. I'm going to choose because I think this might actually be a news you can use type thing. How to survive a nuclear war. I think there's a good chance that we're going to face the apocalypse in the next few years. So how do you live through that, Andrew Heaton? 
Whew. So I, I assume you're referencing the the doomsday porn episode of the political orphanage I did about two months ago. I, I did one I, called. I'm a sucker for that kind of thing. Like it, it was, I could watch the stand on repeat. Yeah, it, me too. Like, I'm, I'm the exact same way. I, I love Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I love dystopian fiction. And so I, I did an episode, like a real deep dive, two hour episode on what all happens in nuclear war, uh, plug on the political orphanage, my show. So I get into like, where does the president go? What's the chain of command? There's doomsday planes. Where does the king of England go? All that stuff. And then, and then about halfway through, I get into like, what about us? What happens to us? Well, of course, I very much hope this never happens because there's no part of this that sounds like it would be fun. It sounds like it'd be pretty awful. The, the thing that surprised me, the, the two things that surprised me, where the initial blasts are not actually as deadly as I thought they were, which sounds crazy. Mm. However, the the nuclear winter is much, much worse than I thought going in. So starting with the nuclear winter bit, noting that we only have about 15 scientists that have really ever modeled any of this. So it is a very small sample size. The, the current consensus among st- that study nuclear winter models is that if we had a limited boutique nuclear war between Pakistan and India that does not directly affect anyone in the Northern Hemisphere. An artisanal neighborhood nuclear conflict. The the soot from that would be so immense that it would reduce sunlight by about 20% for five years. We'd have kind of a nuclear autumn phenomenon and a presumed 2 billion people would starve to death. And that's just, yeah. excuse me, India and Pakistan go to war. So if it were- Remember kids, this is the good news portion of the show. Yeah. If, if this were, if it were Russia versus America, the nuclear winter would be much, much, much worse. But in terms of the actual blast, one of the statistics I was very surprised to find is that in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, about 80% of the population survived those nuclear blasts. They, they are- phenomenal, hellish, devil's areola of destruction level bombs. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to downplay them, but they're, they're not magical. They're still, a, they're still an instrument of physics. And so if, if a nuclear bomb were to go off and you were not in the immediate destruction zone, you're on, you're on the edge or you're, you're in the kind of the, the mid-level area and, and you don't, we don't really know where the bombs would be targeted or even if they'd be well calibrated based on the efficacy of the Russian military right now. Yeah, you might be able to survive it. You might be able, like if you, if you can get to an interior room or a basement and you're not knocked out by the pressure wave or the heat wave, and then you can hunker down for two, three days until the really bad radiation dissipates, then like you'd, you'd survive that initial bit. Well, okay. Two things. One, I am kind of coincidentally right now trying to get onto the show an old friend of mine who was the National Security Council person in charge of the India-Pakistan conflict and dealing with those potential nuclear exchange scenarios. She's gone on to a fabulous career and a million other things. And we're literally right now talking about coming out of the show. Zania, I'm plugging your, your future appearance. The other kind of interesting thing to me, you're a former congressional staffer. I'm a former congressional staffer. There are people who get the card meaning the set of instructions about if there is a nuclear war, you get entry into the special facility where you get to hunker down. Yeah. I didn't get the card. I, I definitely didn't get that. Yeah. But I know people who had it. And what's really spectacular about it is it's just like Dr. Strangelove. Like you get to go, your family does not get to go. And like what's supposed to let you carry on after everyone you know has been wiped out is a bold spirit of adventure and expectation of what's to come. And, you know, you can't allow a mineshaft gap. So that's, I guess, everything you just said is 
encouraging well here's here's where the encouragement comes nuclear war would be really really bad and all all of the like the, the thing i would actually be most worried about is nuclear winter because that that would be really really tough the the good news is we haven't had a nuclear war we've actually avert we've had what is it 60 80 years now of being nuclear powers we haven't had a nuclear war which is actually great there, there I didn't have I, I didn't have time to get into this in the show unfortunately I might do a follow-up on this we have taken steps to to mitigate the the of nuclear war both both the United States and the Soviet Union thankfully have now a lot of redundancies in place to make sure that there's not going to be an air nuclear missile that shoots off in, in the United States it's it's astonishing what level of thought has gone into this of there are two guys locked in a vault underground. They both ha- they have to get a an alert. Then they have to have they don't have the code to unlock the missiles. That comes from the president. So the president has to call the chain of command, give the code to them. They now have the code. Both of them on either sides of the room pull the switch down. That way, if one of them goes crazy, he can't he can't do both. And even then, that can't launch a missile unless somebody else down the road has done the exact same thing. So we have lots of redundancies in place. And we've had lots of good political solutions to try and minimize this. Um, well, you know, t- what it reminds me of is like one of those workplace things. It's like we've had fill in the blank years since yeah. we've had a nuclear war. It's really right. great. Yeah. And, you know, on that note, what I should what I should mention, first of all, is that we had a fascinating episode on this topic with John Tierney, who is the executive director of Council for a Livable World, the number one nuclear abatement organization in the world. It's in the Beyond Politics feed. And speaking of podcast feeds, The podcast where you can find a lot more on all of these things that Andrew Heaton is talking about is the political orphanage, although you could also go to the uh, probing one, alienating the audience and all the other stuff he does. I'm giving this rundown because we are all out of time on the radio show, which is such a bummer. So much more to get into. Look, we could do our own podcast called Two Sane White Guys. For now, (laughs) we'll just have to leave it here. Thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. My pleasure. 